It's Thursday, March 18th, and you are listening to the second episode of Season 2 of Combing the Stacks. We are a music podcast dedicated to covering the best albums of all time as determined by besteveralbums.com. Beware the Ides of March with your hosts, John, Josh, and Matt. We are continuing our coverage of albums from the 1970s and have three more interesting albums to discuss tonight. In our first segment, John will get funky with it in his coverage of Funkadelic's Maggot Brain from 1971. While the album has recently dipped out of the top 100 since we compiled the list, we still feel it's much worth talking about as it represents an early version of funk that would become more prominent as the decade progressed. In our second segment, Josh will delve into the self-titled debut album from Black Sabbath. If you want to make the argument that heavy metal starts here, you could probably make a compelling case. And while many did not get this album at the time it was released in 1970, it's pretty safe to say that Satan was a big fan. In our third and final album, Matt will pour one out as he covers the Beatles for the last time on the podcast. 1970's Let It Be was the final album released by the Fab Four and was fraught with the tension that was first seen with the recording of the White Album. Were they able to go out on top, or were they leaving their fans, and themselves, puzzled with the results? We're glad to have you all back this week, and are excited to continue our exploration of the best music of the 1970s. It takes us a while to get through everything on the show, so let's stop wasting time and get to it. See you inside.
17, and you're listening to episode 36 of the Coming to Stacks podcast, or CTS if you're one of the cool kids. Whether you're a first-timer, a long-timer, or a filthy casual, we'd like to welcome to the warm confines of the show. I'm both your chairman of the board and the governor of the estate, the Garden State's favorite son, John, and I'm joined as always by the dynamic duo of discourse who I'm proud to call my co-hosts. First, the man who taught Mick Jagger how to strut and David Bowie how to dress. The man whose voice has fathered a thousand offspring, and the man who <laughs> voluntarily calls upstate New York his home, Matty Ice himself. Matt, how are you, buddy? Oh, I'm I'm doing well. Upstate New York represent, and happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. Let's Ooh. get bombed. <laughs> <laughs> and that is going to be a thread tonight on some of these albums. But I, thought, I would. I, I thought I'd do that with a uh, with an Irish accent, but I didn't want to offend anybody, <laughs> even though I am sl- slightly Irish. You, so you uh, have Irish ancestry. I do, I do actually. Yes, nice. not as much as I once thought, but it's still there. So I'll take it. Oh, did you do one of those ancestry.com? <laughs> no, my parents did twenty two and me. My parents did. My parents did. So, oh, okay. uh, so I, I am my parents. So I did. I they got to take all the uh, hits for me so uh you know well nice. and these these guys stubbornly refused to do our new format either so i can't even you heard josh <laughs> in the background so i'm going to introduce him he is the man who is the kingmaker and the shot taker the heartbreaker and the pun maker the man from the great state of north carolina jumping josh flesh himself josh how are you <laughs> Doing great. I mean, that intro is amazing. That's probably the best intro I've ever had. There we go. I try, I'm going to try to top myself every single week as long as you bastards don't step all over my openings. <laughs> hey, so. it wasn't me. Josh, st- Josh talked before you introduced him, so it's all on him. Everyone Fair knows enough. who I am. I can come in anytime I want. <laughs> <laughs> Big stepper over there. So, All right, so we've got some, some I think... Very interesting albums tonight. Three completely different albums, which is always, I think, our best shows. Um, And yeah, so I'll be covering the album Maggot Brain by Funkadelic from 1971. Uh, Just so you guys know, we're trying to go in chronological order, but through an accident of timing, um, a lot of the uh, albums from the 1970s are albums where Josh and Matt have covered those artists before in the 60s. And once you hitch a ride with an artist, you follow them all the way through in our format. So um, as a result, I really don't come in until 1971. Uh, so this will be our first album from 1971 tonight. And uh, Josh, why don't you tell everybody what you're covering tonight? Yes, I am covering The Birth of Metal, Black Sabbath's self-titled album, Black Sabbath from 1970. And nice. Matt, what about you? What are you covering tonight? Um, coming, it's, it's coming to the end. I'm covering The Beatles for the last time. We're doing Let It Be, uh, their album from 1970. Um, And that's going to kind of lead us into our essential question for this week, which um, is that the question? I think Josh posed, but I'm going to host it because it's uh, kind of coming off of my album and my segments. But mm-hmm. um, we decided that we would at the, you know, that now that this is the end of the Beatles, we're going to rank all of our Beatles albums. So we're going to do that right now um, of the albums that we've covered. Uh, we are going to leave out where we feel Let It Be should go because um, we don't want to tip our hands and let people know ahead of time what we might be thinking. So at the very end of the show, after uh, when we cover Let It Be, uh, each of us will indicate where Let It Be kind of falls in this for us. So um, do we want to kind of do like a round robin or we want to probably, right? We can start off with, uh, well, are we counting Yellow Submarine? Because I have that in That's... here as number 13. So we yeah. didn't cover that. but it's I do as well. I have that yeah. at 13 as well. It's, 
It's not really I an album. I also have it as 13. All right. No, there we go. Okay. So, you know, thir- or 12A or 12B yeah. or whatever. So, yeah. Um, well, let's go with number 12. So, Josh, what do you have at number 12? Beatles for Sale. Oh, okay. That is my choice for 12, too, Josh. Uh, Great okay. minds. <laughs> yes. All right. I went with number 12 is uh, with the Beatles. Okay. So That is uh, my number 11. That's your number 11. Okay, John, what's your 11? That is not mine. My 11 is Please Please Me. That's my 11. So I got Please Please Me at number 11. So the early ones off the bat. Uh, number 10. My 10 Josh. is Magical Mystery Tour. Ooh. Okay. Oh, that's my 10 too, Josh. <laughs> We're lining up. <laughs> That's where I'm throwing Beatles for sale on that one. Okay. So, um, number. We've got a pretty. We've got a pretty good consensus going so far. Yeah, on we're this. kind of yeah. in there. Nothing. No, no. Nothing jumping out yet. So uh, number nine. Number nine. Number, <laughs> number nine. nine. <laughs> Josh. Uh, please please me. Please please me. Okay. John. With the Beatles falls there. With the Beatles, and that's where I have Magical Mystery Tour. Okay. So um, number eight. Abbey Road. Oh, <laughs> boo! Uh, my my take's gonna be pretty scalding too because I have revolver there. Oh, mm-hmm. both of you guys should get kicked off of this podcast for that for the number eight there. Get um, get back, John. Get back. <laughs> Touche. I have Sergeant Pepper. Jojo, get back, Jojo. Get back, get back, both of you. I have uh, I have Sergeant Pepper there at number eight. Boy, that's like a threesome of Angry Beatles fans right there, since that's most of the top three. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, all right, number seven. I have help. Okay. I have Sergeant Pepper. And that's where I have Hard Day's Night. Okay. Make it number seven. Uh, number uh, six. Sergeant Pepper for me. That's where I have Hard Day's Night. And I have help at number six. Okay. So all right. A lot of revolving there. Here we go. All right. Number, um, what is this? Number five. Mm-hmm. Got revolver. Ugh. I've I've got the white album. That's what I have. The white album there as well. Okay, um, number four. Got the white album. The white album, John. I have rubber soul. That's my rubber soul there. Number three. Hard days night. Hard days night. Oh, okay, what am I there, what am I missing? Because I have two and one. Because we haven't I'm, done let it be yet. So yeah. actually, technically, okay. number yeah. Yes. This is number two, right? Okay, yes. I'm not going yep. crazy. Okay, right. so, yeah. okay, yeah, because I left Let It Be Out. Uh, help. Yeah, that's why I did too. Is my number two. And that's where I have Revolver. Okay. And then I've got Rubber Souls, my number one, as you would know from our top ten of the decade. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And John and, and I. I, yep. I have just, yep, I have just learned that Abbey Road is my one. It used to be my two, but it is wow. supplanted. Help that's is a big, that's one. a big step, John. That's like mm-hmm. a big moment. I'll tell you what, that. too. Rubber Soul is starting to drop a little bit for me, too. It's, it, I came very close to ranking the White Album over Rubber Soul. It's wow. uh, It's been a long and winding road for you. <laughs> <laughs> that means we all have let it be at number one. Uh, yeah. Not quite. Not not quite. We're gonna. Yeah. I I guess we screwed. I screwed up the numbers there. It's but okay. uh, but we'll we'll throw let it be in there at the end. So uh, yeah, pretty pretty good consensus there. A couple as, of a couple as of is always the case though. I think when we do list, my list is correct. So if you're looking for a list, <laughs> oh yeah, go, right. Yep, okay. So. Sure, yeah, sure. Right. I, Unimpeachable choice. I just want to make sure that as we do list in the future, since these two both like lists, it's just important to know who's listed. John, isn't to. that one of those so, things where if you mm-hmm. have to make the announcement, then it negates the, what the announcement is. Like if you have to tell well, people how great you are, don't you cease to be great? Well, as you know, Matt, my good looks are only superseded by my modesty. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that why we don't see you on the, uh, that's why i do podcasts yes (laughs) he's looking like ozzy osbourne over there (laughs) so we'll post these on twitter we'll post the rankings so you don't have to 
with the with the let it be slotted in so everyone knows where, where we stand at, on, at yellow on submarine that. standing solidly at 13 <laughs> the one album we didn't discuss yeah. it's not really an album it's not really an album no yeah. no but uh, it does have hey bulldog on it which is a kick-ass song so um nice yeah, you should listen to it for that. They'll so. have to rank the singles <laughs> next. <laughs> All the no. past master singles. <laughs> that would be an interesting one, the past master oh ones. But I think we should yeah. let the Beatles lay for a little bit yeah, before we go back. Yeah, yeah. I would agree yeah, with I that. So. We're also going right. to have like every member of the Beatles besides Ringo's albums in the 70s, too. So yeah, there'll right. be plenty of time. Yeah. That's right. So there you mm-hmm. go. Good point, John. All right. So good job, guys. Uh, I enjoyed that. And let's kick it over to John because I hear, I hear John has some stacks that are a little dirty. Oh, he's got to get down that elbow grease and get him clean. So first of the season, he's already got stuff to clean. Wow! Outcast, throw it out. All right. So cleaning the stacks. Uh, I am not normally the person who cleans the stacks, but this is a shameless plug for our YouTube uh, account, which is starting to get. Uh, robust with segments from the show that we're putting on. I have been putting up segments, some of which have been recently, some of which have caused me to to close my eyes and grip my teeth as I listen to our earliest episodes, guys. <laughs> as I you, lo- see, how are you deciding what to pick? I started for a while with the most recent ones, and then I decided to throw in some of the earlier episodes for posterity's sake. Mm-hmm. But uh, some of those, as much as we are trying hard, you can definitely tell we've made some progress. So while it's it's like listening to demo tapes, you know, mm-hmm. at the time. And, and uh, so if you're a CTS completist, I'm sure it will be, if you weren't listening, it, w- it will be fun to listen to. But for those that may have come in later, it might be a little bit rough, you know, uh, only only for the biggest fans. Uh, along the way. But uh, what's started to happen with YouTube, which I love, uh, is we've started to get some feedback. And, uh, you know, I shared some feedback a couple weeks ago from a gentleman who gave us uh, some feedback on the Beatles. And actually, I got some feedback. I want to give a shout out uh, for some people that uh, were talking this week. But first, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to shout out someone who has been listening to us, apparently. Um, J. Kelly, WWIP. Um, Took umbrage, guys, with mm. our review of Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and if he is listening this week, uh, I hope he appreciates our honesty yeah. and the consistency of our honesty. He did share three different comments <laughs> disagreeing strongly with it, okay. All uh, right. including what is my favorite comment on any of the videos we've posted so far. And there's some truth to this, too. And it's, it's pretty awesome. So I do mm. want to give Van Morrison his due. Greatest writer, plays five instruments, Gambino crime family member, broke a guitar over his head. He doesn't care what you or anyone else thinks. Yes. Mystic eyes. <laughs> and that, I don't know if we're going to get a better comment than that. So so if you're listening, J. Kelly, WWIP, Amazing. I thoroughly enjoyed that comment. Yeah, and that you know good. what? It might even cause me to go back and listen to the songs that you um, quoted in your other uh, posts as well, and I appreciate your Van Morrison fandom. He will have a chance to win us over again with Moondance in a couple weeks. I think uh, it's a 1971 album, so we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> did he say uh, anything about your Van Morrison impression? You're saying he, he, he did for that? He <laughs> did not, and I have a feeling if he if he stuck around long enough to hear that, I do not think that would have made us more popular. So. <laughs> Um, and I do want to give a shout out to Jack Saro, C-E-R-R-O, who put a couple quotes up on our Grateful Dead um, uh, segment, uh, saying that uh, Jerry Garcia did play the steel pedal guitar on uh, 
the Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young album, yep. uh, which I believe Josh referenced last week, which is yep. which CTS superfan Steve also told me is interesting because Jerry himself did not really play the steel pedal on mm. many of the Grateful Dead's albums in 1970. It was mm. actually okay. um, a, a uh, traveling member of the band who, and now he's going to kill me again because I'm forgetting the name right now and I even wrote it down and everything. But yeah, uh, it, it was the gentleman who taught Jerry Garcia how to play the oh. steel pedal guitar. Hmm. Yep, and apparently Jerry uh, Garcia was apprehensive about playing the steel pedal guitar. Um, he did not enjoy playing it um, because hmm. he was self-conscious. So um, I'll have to... Interesting while we're that doing they it. picked him to do it. Like, hey, let's yeah. get the apprehensive guy who doesn't really play very well to play on our <laughs> yeah. big album. Well, so. I think in the spirit of that, you know, lots of swapping guys, as we've talked about many times of, I, yeah. of all things. About, that's usually about women, though. Like, it's well, a, yeah. well drug, drugs, music, <laughs> women, you know... Uh, Pleasures of all, from yeah, pleasures yeah. of of the psychedelic to the flesh and everything in between. So, um, and also uh, he dropped that uh, Garcia was apparently heavily inspired by uh, uh, Uncle John's band on the singing style as well, which is a Bulgarian vocal ensemble. And he linked us up on YouTube as well. So um, the feedback is starting to get good. I'm not gonna not gonna be able to share every piece of feedback we get, but perhaps this will be its own segment. John shares YouTube feedback as we start to get a presence. And as I've threatened many times yeah maybe one of these times we'll we'll even take a shot at filming one of these segments and uh putting them up just to give a different mm. um different panache to our segments but i did want to share that that's about all the stacks cleaning i have i don't know if you guys have anything that you would like to to add i have a couple of quick things um Go for so it. actually actually uncle john's band i was going to bring that up because last week we were talking about the songs that were kind of the bigger songs on grateful dead's working man's dead the album that came out before american beauty and we talked about um, Casey Jones, but the other one was Uncle John's band. So you kind of, that was, just wanted to throw that out there. Um, the Grateful Dead also, I forgot to mention this. I didn't know about this beforehand, but apparently during, you know, um, one of their tours, they decided to create, and we talking about Phil Spector, the wall of sound. Well, the Grateful Dead created a literal wall of sound by, by basically collecting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of speakers and stacking them up uh, roughly about over 30 stories high what? behind the stage. So if you see these pictures of like, there's just ridiculous amounts of speakers and they had, they had like an engineer, a sound engineer that was also, I think he might've been one, of the, he... one of the biggest LSD yeah. sellers and, and dealers <laughs> in the world. And he Shocking. also like, he also created the wall of sound, which was like the Grateful Dead's like huge speakers. So um, even if you hated the dead, they, they didn't care. They wanted you to hear them and they, did everything that they could to make that happen. So um, I forgot to mention that. I thought that was a very interesting um, tidbit there. That's actually very similar to what I, I talked about in our very first Who segment, where Pete mm. Townsend used to do that. He used to just stack speakers on top of each other and put them up to, you know, decibel 900 and play them there. And some of that is where feedback started coming in. And that's why the Who popularly sometimes get credit for yeah. a variety of things, amplifiers, speaker uh, equipment and stuff because they were always messing around with because they had the rep of being one of the loudest bands going yeah at, you know especially in the mid 60s so well yep. they were probably able to recreate the sound that the grateful dead did with like a fraction of the amount of speakers <laughs> yes, and I, and i don't I never i never saw any footage of jerry garcia like trashing his guitar or like mickey hart you know like can you imagine blowing up his drum set so. keith moon drumming behind the grateful dead <laughs> that's i i would like to if i was more talented as an editor i would love to take like you know won't get fooled again you know drum fill you know keith moon and put it over like you know Casey Jones or something, you know, to see what it would sound like. So, yeah. It'd be like they were in slow motion. And he was, 
moving yeah. double speed Mel- or something. Mellow out, man. Um, <laughs> and then I wanted to say, uh, I also thought it'd be a good idea to throw in the uh, where the Rolling Stone, if, if these albums are in the Rolling Stone list, and we didn't oh, yeah. really talk about those rankings. I did screw mm. up. I, I think I said that Funhouse was like 87, and it was actually 94. So still in the top 100, though, I was pretty close. Okay. Um, American Beauty came in at two, 215. And uh, Deja Vu 220. So they were actually very close together on that list as well. So um, Shout out, I, by the way, to all of our Michigan listeners who immediately uh, appreciated the Deja Vu East Lansing reference as well. Oh, yeah. So for those of you listening, <laughs> oh. there, was, there, were, there were many texts exchanged about that head nod right there. So, nice. yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Those, those Michiganders really know their strip clubs. They sure do. They sure do. Yeah, cold nights in Michigan. Apparently Van Morrison does too if he was bashing the Gambino crime family over the head. So <laughs> He doesn't care what we think. I, I have no doubt that that's the case. Well, North speaking North of folks City. who had... Yeah. <laughs> well, as long as, as long as we let him play unfettered, I think we can have whatever opinion we want. So, yeah. Well, speaking of people who had interesting nights, we're going to talk about Funkadelic right now. So, so Matt is going to be taking on the role of numbers guy for the show. So before right. I kick it to the opening segment, Matt, why don't you run the numbers for us this week? So Maggot Brain by Funkadelic actually is 101 in the 1970s. Um, so it's just cracked out of it. It was in it before. It'll probably make its way back in uh, the top 100 by the time we finish this decade. But um, it, all, it was released in 1971 where it was ranked tw- 20th and over overall 407 of all time by best ever albums. All right. Thanks for running the numbers, Matt. And now I'm going to kick to the uh, opening. Uh, In the montage at the beginning, you heard the awesomely named Hit It and Quit It. And now, uh, hopefully, Josh picks one of the several uh, wall-peeling guitar solos from Maggot Brain. All right, fellas, before I start talking about this, how much did you guys know about Funkadelic? Or I guess I could even say Parliament, since many times Parliament and Funkadelic were one and the same, although not on this album. Josh, how familiar were you outside of like Death Row Records covers? I knew nothing about them. Mm. I knew knew George Clinton and what he looked like. That's about it. Wow. Okay. I don't think I ever listened to any of their music or if I did, I didn't know it was them and uh, yeah so okay so total cold listen for you mm-hmm. okay how about you yeah, matt i'm not much different obviously new george clinton uh i p-funk is also a word that comes to mind i don't know if that was like a the, mm-hmm. the, the short That's term the, for parliament funkadelic um that is the I, combination of parliament and funkadelic when they played together because they were okay. two separate bands okay um mm-hmm. i didn't know that so i'm, I'm interested to hear more about that oh, okay. but i did know um i did know can you get to that so when mm-hmm. that song came on, I definitely recognized that. But when I first heard that song, it wasn't because of that 
wasn't because of can you get to that it was because it was a sam- it was sampled by sleigh bells in their song real real yep um and so i love that song right away i was like this is great what a cool little guitar part and then like a couple years later i heard can you get to that and i was like oh okay that makes sense they did <laughs> they, just, they just took a great yeah you know classic <laughs> p- funk song and made it their own so um uh but i would i, I do would admit that um even though I knew that song, I wasn't sure that it was uh, uh, funkadelic. So, uh, so okay. I was like, "Oh, I you know." But the, other than that, nothing. This was a this was a cold listen. God, so like you can't have listened to hip hop in the '80s or '90s without it's like there's like a holy trinity, right? There's yeah. there's funkadelic in Parliament. There's the Isley Brothers, and then there's late '70s Diana Ross. And basically, if you were listening to anything from Death Row Records, not to mention the Beastie Boys and stuff, you heard Funkadelic and Parliament mm-hmm. being sampled liberally in the same way that like Diana Ross's, you know, 70s catalog was pilfered by Puff Daddy in the Bad Boy era, right? And then everybody, everybody sampled the Isley Brothers, like literally everybody. So, and we're going to cover albums from the Isley Brothers. I don't know if we have a Diana Ross album, though. Um, so, you know, but perhaps you know we could add that in as like a bonus one just so we can truly get the holy trinity of samples and you know other groups have been sampled along the way too um but including a lot of like including a lot of like new romantic groups that we're going to talk about later in the 70s interestingly enough we uh, we are not getting a diana ross album mm. john the uh the highest ranked album she has is 519 in the 1980s so that ain't happening disappointing Um, yeah i think i think that album is on the rolling stone record so i think we're going to do a cold listen on her okay well, gosh, I mean, I don't even know where to begin in a bio with uh, Funkadelic or Parliament Funkadelic. Uh, and it's important to mention, too, I mentioned that uh, P-Funk was the combination of Parliament and Funkadelic when they played together. But it also was sort of what the sound that both of the groups made was called as the 70s played out. So that would be um, that would be another way to sort of uh, describe mm-hmm. it. So. Um, what I am going to do is try to give you bullet points on this group and I will fill in because we do have a future Funkadelic album in this countdown. And I believe we have a Parliament album in, uh, Cold Listen Hot Take as well. So we're going to be talking about them quite a bit. So, uh, as I said earlier, they're considered a sister group with Parliament connected by both the funk sound and the fact that George Clinton, um, was sort of the label, the producer, the, the, uh, label, the label head and was in was the leader of the band when they uh, performed together. Uh, the music is often uh, the music of Funkadelic is often described as the evolution of black rock and roll music that a lot of people trace to Jimi Hendrix and also to a lesser extent what Sly Stone was doing at the end of the 60s. Although by the time we hit this time period for Sly Stone, uh, he's doing a lot different stuff, which is going to be interesting because we cover him next week. Uh, so we'll, I'll save that for next week. But uh, the Parliament was sort of known for playing pure funk with some uh, socio-political uh, commentary over top of it. Uh, while Funkadelic would get into that, and certainly Parliament Funkadelic would, Funkadelic at the beginning was known as sort of a more rock and roll outfit. Uh, at least that's f- rock and roll with elements of funk and soul built into it. But they mm. thought of themselves as a rock and roll band. Mm. Um, here's sort of <laughs> the background of Funkadelic is fascinating. So they were originally the support band for George Clinton's doo-wop group. How about that? George you Clinton a doing doo-wop. a doo-wop group. <laughs> I wow. didn't know that. You know, I think people underestimate how much that doo-wop and early sound was so influential on all the artists of the 60s, even people you would never... Because, you know, we saw some of that in the Velvet Underground, certainly yeah. the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it really did influence a lot of folks. And I think that because it kind of got the rep of being uncool, you know, because a lot mm -hmm. of the singles were of it, I think it's really underappreciated how many artists started in doo-wop groups or listened to doo-wop and sort of took it in a different direction. Um, but yeah, so he had a doo-wop group. And the original Funkadelic was actually none of the members of Funkadelic that were in the group that we're covering tonight, hmm. which is funny because after this album, three of the members of this Funkadelic leave, leaving only two of the <laughs> remaining members. <laughs> and then there'd be only one more album before another member of that group left. So Funkadelic is one of these things that isn't even like Nine Inch Nails where it's like, or, or like Smashing Pumpkins where it's like either Trent Reznor or Billy Corgan and like whoever he's playing with at the time yeah. to some degree. Uh, it doesn't even have like a central figure like that because remember George Clinton's not in Funkadelic so he's only producing the albums. Mm. So originally the group was, uh, and there are some tremendous names who've been in Funkadelic, <laughs> by the way. There's Frankie and Richard Boyce on guitar and bass and then Langston Booth on drums. That's and cool. All three of those gentlemen were drafted into the military to Vietnam, and so they're gone. And George Clinton decides to keep his rhythm section, and that is where this Funkadelic, which becomes three-fifths of the band that you hear tonight, uh, excuse me, um, four-fifths of the band that you hear tonight, is born. And so Funkadelic Part 2 and four of the five parts of tonight's bands are Billy Bass Nelson. I'll give you guys one guess as to what instrument he plays. <laughs> and Eddie, ha Eddie Hazel on the guitar. Matt was going to make a joke. Go ahead, Matt. I didn't mean to No, it's not. It's the moment's passed. It's fine. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, sorry about that. I was plow. I'm not normally a big bio guy, so I'm plowing through this like it's plow a Plow ahead, you know, John. It's all good. Like it's... Have you ever seen an election? Yeah. There's an election where they have the guy, the quarterback runs for president and, you know, he yeah. reads the, the speech as fast as he can. Yeah, that's <laughs> why I feel like I'm doing this bio. So, <laughs> so there's Lucius Tall Ross on rhythm guitar and Ramon Tiki Fullwood on the drums. And so in 1968, the band officially gets christened Funkadelic as opposed to The Parliaments from the group's dual influences of psychedelic music, which you certainly can hear in this mm -hmm. album, and LSD, which to me, that's like potato potato right there, right? Mm -hmm. Psychedelic music and LSD. Uh, the group also highly credits science fiction for a lot of their inspiration, which mm -hmm. I know later on with the mothership connection and stuff, you totally see. But there's a little bit of it in this album as well. Uh, they also sign a record deal. Um, so they release a self-titled debut in 1970 that was produced by George Clinton. Then they officially add Bernie Worrell on keyboards for their second album, uh, Maggot Brain, which we're coming tonight as their third. The second album is the fantastically named and later co-opted by Snoop and Dr. Dre, Free Your Mind and Your Ass Will Follow was their second album <laughs> for 1970 as well. That sounds and like so, En Vogue. I think of En Vogue when yeah, I hear that. Yeah. Well, the Free Your Mind part, but yeah, they weren't necessarily And the next will there. follow, I think, or maybe you got something it. like that yeah so Worrell's super important because besides the keyboard sound which is a big part of the p-funk sound to begin with uh he did a couple different things he was a master music arranger who produced and arranged most of the funkadelic and parliament releases throughout the rest of the 70s he also was uh trained at the new england conservatory and juilliard so he had some pretty major mm. chops in the you know supposedly straight music world and so when you hear horn and organ and synth runs that are sampled liberally for the next 30 years, that's gonna be Worrell's arrangement. 
So the sample part of it is largely Worrell, even, you know, while you hear like Bootsy Collins playing down the road and George Clinton's voice and stuff like that, it's really sort of the arrangement is Worrell. So he's a big ad and he's the fifth member on this group. Um, I mentioned Bootsy Collins, who a lot of people think of when they think of Funkadelic yeah. or Par- Parliament. Th- 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 he's not on Maggot Brain. He joins the band shortly afterwards. The reason he joins the band is because, boy, did they have a rough 1972. Um Mr. Ross, Tall Ross, had a, there's a lot of stories about it, but a particularly bad LSD trip. Um, I think some speed was involved as well, but he just couldn't come back from that, so he was out of the group. Jeez, Um, one trip? Yep, about a year later, now Eddie Hazel makes it to one more album, and Eddie Hazel's sound is obviously all over this album. But uh, after their next album, he actually ends up in jail for a year from a, assaulting a stewardess i believe on pcp so he's largely out of the group he does make appearances here and there throughout the 70s but he's never there again um ramon fullwood has an argument with george clinton about money and so he's gone and billy bass nelson ends up i believe also in prison for a short stay for an assault as well so the group is basically with after one more so leading into the next album three members are gone and then after that album the four members are gone, and the only person left at that point is Worrell, and that's a big deal because Worrell becomes their producer. But mm. there's a lot that walks out the door from this album, um, as we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, can you get to that on this album? I don't know if you noticed. We did Isaac Hayes' Hot Buttered Soul, and one of the cool things about adding some of those albums is that we may be able to make connections. But the background singers uh, from... Uh, Isaac Hayes, his, they're, they're known as Hot Buttered Soul, and they are actually on the back of Can You Get to That? Mm. And the title of this album is either, depending on who you ask, Eddie Hazel's nickname or a reference to, how about this for quite the, a reference to George Clinton finding his dead bod, brother's body in a Chicago apartment. Oh. Hence the maggot yeah. brain. And it was apparently a pretty violent death. Um, and yeah, so there's so much more I could cover. I'm leaving out pretty much all of the next generation of Funkadelic and Parliament because we're going to get there. Uh, I tried to just focus on what led up to this album. And we're going to talk, I'm sure, about a lot of the roots of this. This album peaked at 108 on the U.S. charts. It did not chart in the UK, which was still looked at as a comparable chart. Uh, so this was very much under the radar when it came mm. out, it, at least to the general the general population, I think, in total, but especially America that was not black America, I guess would yeah. be a good way to put it as well. So there we go. That's a little bit of a lead-in into Funkadelic. Uh, you know, I, I, am, I am familiar with Funkadelic in Parliament. I won't say I'm an expert, but uh, I have a couple friends who are – noted audiophiles of this period you know the horny horns which come in later i've listened to many horny horns albums along the road bootsy collins all kinds of different stuff so i did have a working background i am actually fascinated to hear what you guys have to say about this because i legitimately have no idea how you're gonna feel about this so you know what matt let's start with you thoughts on this album so my first thought was i thought this was going to be way more funk Mm-hmm. um i was i this this rocked out more than i thought and yeah. so when you when you said john that this was that this band was more into the rock elements that certainly yes. plays out in this album. Um, yeah. At this point they considered themselves to be the rock and parliament to be the, the true funk. And then yeah. they fused. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's, there's, there's definitely funk in here, but it's, mm-hmm. it, it, this is, this reads to me much more of a rock album with funk elements infused, you know, here and there. Um, so the first track was fascinating. Um, I, 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 
eventually I really like it. I do think it's too long. I would probably cut it in about half. The the Maggot Brain opening track is just this really um it's a really pretty kind of kind of psychedelic guitar solo and it's but it's done over this walking kind of like um you know uh note like finger picking uh structure that's mm-hmm. in the guitar in the background and it's it's very it's very pretty. It's very um I don't know if there's I, pain. It's almost like a jazz. It's almost like well, a jazz uh, artist, you know, kind of you know, emoting their, you know, through the instrument is kind of what I was feeling through that song. It's, it's fascinating you say that, Max. I, I forgot to add two things that I think will add context. Uh-huh. One was that mid-70s Miles Davis very much credited Eddie Hazel's guitar as being something that inspired him later in the decade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is... George Clinton gave specific instructions to Eddie Hazel before going out to play like you just found out your mama died and trying oh. to make trying to figure out what your life will be like as you reconcile that was his yeah. exact instructions. Yep. Yeah. Well, there you, that's yeah, you can, you can kind of hear that. Um, so I, I really like the first half of that. I think it's very beautiful. Um, and, and then they kind of he kind of stops playing and he kind of takes in a little bit of a different direction. It's it, it just loses me a little bit. And, it you know, it's like a ten and a half minute long song um there's no vocals it's just like this instrumentation so to Mm -hmm. me that was a little bit long but then it kicks in like the next five songs are just bangers man you got can you get into that hit it and quit it's a great song you and your folks me and my folks might be my favorite song on this i love the female back back the background singers in this um it's and you know and they're they're they got they got a really good groove going on with that um and super stupid this song in particular there's other parts of this album that made me think of this as well but particularly with super stupid I'm hearing Prince all over this, you know, especially with like the way that the guitar solo sounds. That guitar solo in Super Stupid is ridiculous. That's one of my favorite guitar solos I think that we've heard so far in this entire podcast. I just, the more I listen to that, w- what they're doing with that and the music in the background is just, he's shredding on the guitar. Um, and I mm-hmm. really, really like that. And I'm, and I'm listening to it. I'm like, I could totally mm-hmm. see Prince. This is to me, is like the kind of guitar that Prince would play. And so yeah. I'm, I'm sure that this was influential on, on him. Um, and, uh, back in our minds has really cool use of like, I don't know if they're banging on a bottle or something like that, but they got this really kind of weird, yeah, what is that funky bottle sound that's going yeah. on? John. Yeah. John, do you know what they're playing on that? On, on which track? On, um, back, back in, in our, our minds. minds. It's like, do, 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 but it's all this, like, it's like, he's banging on like a, on like an empty bottle or something. Yeah. Um, it's like a very clangy type sound. Um, I and, don't know off the top of my head. I, I didn't see anything specific. I know there's a lot of, um tricks that george clinton used in production um yes. post-production and i okay. i'm guessing that's probably one of them but i'll see if i can dig into yeah, the answer for that. there's definitely an effect on that because i don't think that's a natural sound but anyway right. that was kind of cool and um i think this is the first time guys correct me if i'm wrong is wars of armageddon the first time we actually hear fart noises on a, on a, on a song <laughs> you might be right yeah. there's a lot of sound effects well, on that track well on our cts journey yes on other <laughs> albums i've listened to over the years perhaps not yeah. There's literal fart noises on it. So that's kind of like all over the place. Um, I, I did like it. It gets a little bit much in the end with the sound effects, particularly yeah. the fart noises. I don't need to listen to that. I, I do that plenty on my own. Um, so, uh, but uh, I, yeah, this was a great album. This is a very fun album. It's very easy to get into um, with a couple of exceptions of like, you know, the second half of Maggot Brain, parts of Wars of Armageddon. You know, it's it's a little bit much, but as an overall record, I really did like it. Um, and uh, yeah, I... I'm su- I'm surprised it didn't sell as as well as it did, and and I'm also not surprised at the same time because this does not seem like it's terribly. 
out of whack, you know, with what's going on in the late 60s and 70s. You know, it's it, like I said, it's very rock. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, it, this is probably an album that should have gotten more uh, play, um, you know, at that time. But that happens with a lot of records. So it's it's I, it, it's not terribly um unique in that regard but uh but i really did like this i'm glad we were able to cover it um so yeah it, yeah thumbs up for me this album is not ranked high enough yeah. this album <laughs> rules yeah. funkadelic is awesome um the i i did not hear sadness in the opening track although i guess that makes sense in retrospect i heard a lot of like 80s guitar in it almost like miami vice or van halen would play uh, a lot of like soaring, like holding on the notes type of guitar playing on the opening track. I, that is the type of long song that I want to hear. Stuff that like varies. I'll just take an instrumental wailing guitar all day. I also love the tracks uh, after that. The the funk songs for the funk rock is great it's all danceable the bass lines on this are fantastic and all these songs i love the the this with along with the backing singers i feel like there's a lot of group uh great group dynamics to the song i feel like there's some give and take there or they're like carrying you know sharing the load equally or they each mm. get their moment to shine i think i felt that way too with sly and the family stone it must just be something with these types of groups the i love the there's so much guitar shredding on this album it was so great like you said matt like on super stupid there's that there's a lot of like guitar solos um or just like surprising, I guess surprising guitar stuff. I wasn't, I was yeah. also not expecting yeah. a rock album in the way that this is. And um, I guess Wars of Armageddon is probably my least favorite track on this album, just because of the like excessive amount of sound effects. But it it's also interesting. It starts out interesting, although I think you get the point probably about halfway through or so. Um, I did not listen to the bonus tracks that were on. Uh, Spotify. I I only go strictly by the the original album uh, release from what I see, so I can't speak to those. But yeah, this album was great. Um, I didn't I didn't really pay attention actually to the singing on the album, so I can't for some reason I don't know why I didn't. But um, it's all instruments for me on this, and I can't wait to hear more Funkadelic. I feel like. I also hear a lot of Lenny Kravitz in this album. Mm. And so I feel like this album is is so influential and I'm right at 1971. I'm it's already sounding we're already veering away from the 60s. I feel like with stuff like this. There we're hearing new sounds. We're hearing just stronger guitars and and kind of different more powerful um things. So I'm really excited to to delve more and i'm glad we get to hear another album from them it's it sounds i'll be interested to see with the revolving cast of musicians if they kind of maintain their greatness throughout but this is very promising and um john what did you think about about oh this is this is an awesome album like yeah definitely awesome it's 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 coming in as the third person a lot of a lot of what I would, not all, but a fair amount of what you guys have said, I would line up with. Um, 
Josh said two things I agree with entirely. I don't mind long songs in the funk genre because there's a lot going on and they're interesting. And to me, the long songs in funk kind of play like long songs in jazz do, that there's parts and codas and it's not staying put in one area. And so for me, both of the long songs on this album did not feel plotting at all. I found Mm -hmm. them both extremely interesting. I love the placement of both of them at the beginning and the end. If you're going to play a long song, that's the place to have them. Not in the middle of an album, like for whatever reason rock bands were doing before. I, I never have understood why you'd throw like a super long song in the middle of an album. So I will say that. The shredding on this album is fantastic. I I would put that, you know, because I've I'm familiar with the two albums before this that, interestingly enough, don't totally sound similar to what we're going to hear from Funkadelic down the road. So I, I think that's important to, to mention, too. Um, but Eddie Hazel's easily one of my top 15 guitarists. I mean, he just is absolute. His guitar tone on this album is fantastic. His solos are of another era. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. Like, yeah. they're like a bridge between Jimi Hendrix and what would come in guitar-driven rock in the mid to late 70s. Um, and I know that you guys also mentioned like Prince and stuff and the guitar in what would be, you know eventually fuse R&B and soul and, and elements of rock. Uh, yeah, he's the bridge between those things. And mm. I, I know you mentioned Eddie Van Halen along the way. I, you definitely hear some of that. I also hear like every AOR guitar of the mid 70s as well. Um, just the guitar sound is awesome in this album. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the second thing that I would say. Um, the the thing I'll say that's kind of also like the the fuzz and wah all over it. You could tell that Hazel's idol was Jimi Hendrix because he's he's trying to play with the same mm-hmm. effects that Jimi Hendrix was. So that's one thing there. A uh, couple things I do want to say that weren't mentioned right now. Like this is what psychedelic like rock is should sound like. Yeah, this is a like kind of batshit crazy album in terms of... I, can, I can't even imagine what... It, Matt said he thinks this is what it sounded like in 1970. I don't think much sounded like this at all in 1971. Like, maybe it's because this sound is familiar, Matt, Like and you recognize it because it comes later, but there, there ain't a whole lot going on that sounds like this, in my opinion, in 1971. To me, this must have been like an almost as alien as like the monks in 1965 or the stooges and led zeppelin in you know 1969 i feel like this is another one of these where it feels like something transported in from and said hey see you in five years when you kind of understand what's going on here so yeah i i just it felt so a- ahead of its time well i yeah it it does i when i made that comment it was more about like because there's still elements in here that are very much grounded in rock and roll and some of the stuff that was being done before where people, I, I don't think it's as much of a leap, right? I think that something like you, the monks, yeah. that's, that stands out as being like, like um, jarring, you know what I mean? And like maybe and possibly unpleasant, even for people mm-hmm. that liked rock music, because it was so different. This is different. Yes, but it's different grounded in something that you can also hang your hat on and, and, and feel, find the groove or find the cool guitar lick. You can, um, that, you that can people... see, I think you're saying you can see kind of the progression that we've made listening yeah. to the music. It's, yeah. it's not a stretch, right? This is yeah. a very easy album to, to listen to and like, and I don't think, the fact that like nobody really did something like this before takes away from the fact that somebody in 1971 would listen to this and be like, Whoa, this is what is going on here. This is, you know what I mean? Like, it seems like it would be a very easy transition to make because it's so catchy. It's so good. So that, that was more what I was talking about there. I don't know if I 100% agree with that, but I hear what you're saying. I, I, I understand where you're coming from and it's a valid 
take. I, I think I just see it. Diff- I, I just, I know where, where you're saying the elements of this we've heard along the way, but the whole pack. I, another thing I want to mention too is like, this is a drug album. Like this is 1000% a drug album. This album was made on drugs. This album was designed to be listened to while on drugs. And this album comes out of a, a, a type of music that I think is, is drug influenced type of music, like the psychedelic music however it transcends that as well and can be listened isolated from that which a lot of drug music doesn't especially late 60s drug music there's now there's a pervasive drug culture but i look at this as this is what i call a happy junkie uh album and Mm. a lot of times drug albums i'll be very honest i'll tip my hand i'm not a huge fan of um the drug you know ethos in not as a Puritan, just I just find albums that are entirely about doing drugs, having drugs, having your conscious shifted. I find a lot of those albums sometimes don't wear super well. Mm-hmm. And there's so, and and, you know, we'll cover some in the 70s and there were quite a few in the 60s. And, you know, th- there's plenty of albums in the 80s and 90s. Um, but this is one of the few drug albums that I, I felt like actually made you want to have the trip with them <laughs> as opposed to avoid the trip at all costs either because they're telling you how terrible it is or because it might be numbing them right this is sort of like a different byproduct of that um it also goes into like uh interracial you know that's basically interracial uh relationships is covered on this album um and the lyrics were very interesting i thought from you and your folks me and my folks there's sex songs, <laughs> there's science fiction songs, there's quite a few drug songs. Um, so there's interesting lyrical content. But yeah, I um, I really like this album. Um, I think it kind of is an interesting one because it's you can see how influential it is, but it's also going to be funny for you guys to hear where Funkadelic and Parliament go because they themselves leave this behind and everybody else sort of picks it up and runs with it. This is oh, a it's very... Interesting. I- I was I was gonna say one thing we haven't mentioned is this is a very danceable album like the yeah besides the book ended tracks and I think that's why a testament to to the groove that it has and that's why I think Mm -hmm. John you can you maybe you know it's kind of more of a better trip type of album is that you can like move to this album and that funk sound it it gets your toes tapping and and you're moving around listening to it so yeah and I agree most most drug albums aren't designed for you to do anything besides drugs, right? Yeah. But this is an album that's designed for you to do things that you don't normally think of with drugs. You know? Well, and that's, so. what I, that's what I was about to say is that I didn't pick up on the, this. I wasn't like, oh my God, this is such a drug album. Mm-hmm. I was much more as this is a dance album because my initial reaction and the reactions that I had on subsequent listens was was buzz, like bobbing my head, like, yeah. you know, dancing and just, you know, but, you know, fine in the groove. Um, so it's interesting you say that like a, like a definitive drug album and, and you know, oh, and for sure. it probably was. And I just, but I'm just saying, I didn't pick up on that at all. So, um, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, it was much more of a dance record for me. Um, what, I, it's funny because that's not even just from my research. That's from like when I listened to this, it's like, oh, this yeah. is clearly. No, this that's, is yeah, it's just yeah. hearing it in different ways. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, but it's definitely got some psychedelic aspects of it. And so in and of itself, like if you're going to throw that word into music, the, yeah. the, the next word that comes behind that is some sort of drug, right? Usually like LSD or something like that. But um so yeah, I, I could I could definitely see that part of it. Um, 
what other al- are we covering the al- another Funkadelic album through the Cold Listen? Because I don't think that they're appearing in the yeah, top. Yeah, Cold Listen okay, has Cold a bunch Listen's. of them. Okay. One Nation Under Grooves on Cold Listen. I think there's nice. three different albums that are either Funkadelic or Parliament albums Parliament, on okay. that. And, and, you know, that makes sense because they are super influential. Mm-hmm. And the Rolling Stone Top 500 brought more people in who talked about And I mean, how can you at all listen to hip hop or R&B or like mm-hmm. 80s? rock and not yeah. you know yeah, right. ref, reference these guys as much as somebody would reference like the rolling stones for example so you know i i'd argue that you hear more of what funkadelic was in modern music than you hear of say the rolling stones and that's no knock on the stones but you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. like right yeah if you're looking yeah. at lineage. yeah i i would also probably know funkadelic from samples and not even realize it right. for yeah. most of these songs, I'm guessing. Well, it's like, have you listened to like Massive Attack and stuff as well? Like <laughs> you can see significant uh, evidence of, the, you know, that type of, that you know, that electronic music in the 90s. There's elements of what that sounds like from mm-hmm. this too. So they even delve outside of, you know, what I guess what would be called black music, right? And into, like I said, the soaring guitars of like, you know, AOR in the 70s, you know, 80s pop, 90s electronica, they're all over the place. So those times where you say uh, AOR, my mind goes to OAR? Wait, no, not OAR. (laughs) That's that's totally different. AOR Um, stands for album-oriented or album-oriented rock. Just big guitars, big hooks, big choruses designed to be played in front of like 15,000 people on a 60, 60 city tour. It's like Journey yeah. in Boston and guys, you know, Air Supply, Ario Speedwagon. Yeah. yeah. Foreigner. I, I'd mm-hmm. say the worst part of this album is the name. That just, the maggot, maggot brain, brain just, yeah, the images come <laughs> well, up in my head are just like, ugh. Well, my ugh. friend, once yeah. again, as a drug album, <laughs> it hopefully makes a little bit more sense to you. Yeah. So, yeah. The cover of the mag- album is cool, though. It's sure. Like it's a, yeah. Woman. Yeah, it's yeah, a like famous. Coming out, of the, coming out of the dirt. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a, it's a famous uh, model of the uh, late 60s and uh, early 70s, um, who was Barbara Cheeseboro, her name was, which is also an awesome name. Um, <laughs> but she was known for being one of the first models to bring in like Afrocentric looks mm, into the nice. world of modeling, uh, as you can see from the Afro on her head, mm-hmm. you know, coming out. So, yeah. So yeah. that's who that was. Cool. Yeah. All right, man. I, I think it sounds like three uh, recommends for maggot brain by funkadelic and we've already run where it uh, runs on the various lists so i'm going to turn it over now to josh who's gonna take us into black the world of black sabbath all right black sabbath self-titled released february 13th 1970 in the opening montage you heard the title track black sabbath and now you're gonna hear a bit from the multi-titled song that has NIB in it. Numbers guy. Numbers guy. Black Sabbath. 
yeah, before I do that, I forgot I should do the um, Magaprain was 136 on Rolling Stones um, list. So uh, I'll, I'll try to add those in as well. But Black Sabbath debut album by Black Sabbath comes in at number 72 in the 1970s on Best Ever Albums, ranked 14 in 1970 and 284 overall. And on Rolling Stones list, it is number 355. All right. We're going to get you one of those old, old-fashioned old green visors. So when you run the yeah. numbers, you look and like... Yeah, and a cigar. Yeah. <laughs> My wife will love that. An right. abacus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Black Sabbath formed in Birmingham, Birmingham, England in 1968. The uh, This is the original lineup, as this is their debut album. And they stayed... All four of them were the original lineup until Ozzy left in 1979. So we have them all through the 70s. You have guitarist Tony Iommi, bass by Geezer Butler. Drummer is Bill Ward, and vocals are Ozzy Osbourne. And he also played the harmonica on that one song on this album. Um, all four of them are still alive, and they're all in their 70s. So that's good, um, despite the number of drugs that Ozzy consumed. And um, good good to see he's still around. So <laughs> There had to be some formaldehyde in <laughs> yeah. some of the stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Black Sabbath started out as a couple different iterations and names before taking the name of Black Sabbath in 1969. Um, they started in 1968 as Polka Tolk Blues Band, and then they shortened <laughs> it to Polka Tolk. And at this point, the band had a slide guitarist in there as well and a saxophonist um, wow. from two wow. guys yeah <laughs> i yeah. did not so know that, that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah um two guys that they knew um that the band knew and then they changed um they changed their name to earth just straight up earth and then they got rid of those two members because uh tony said that they weren't taking it as seriously as the rest of the band members and i think it just didn't go with their the sound they were trying to capture as well and then in december of 68 uh tony Iomi left to play with Jethro Tull. Yes, I knew but, that. But oh, then, wow. But then he left the Tull by the end of the month. So he was really only gone for like a month and came back. Well, he, he must have listened <laughs> to their albums. And, and in fairness, <laughs> that's how I would have reacted too. Yeah, he said he didn't like the fact that there was no real like clear leader of the band. Um, or I guess kind of, which I guess was kind of what their vibe was. Um, was he okay with the flute? I, I don't know. It didn't Rock say. Flute. <laughs> they got they got revenge later when they won that first ever heavy metal <laughs> Grammy, right? Yeah. So, so probably he, the absolute worst Grammy selection ever in terms of picking a genre. So he said, he said, uh, you know, d- he done with them and he rejoined, came back to Earth, and then in mm-hmm. 1969, while they were playing shows in England, they found out there was another band also named Earth that people were getting confused uh, with. So then they said, okay, we need a new name. And they were inspired by um, across the street from one where they were staying or playing one night. Uh, there was a theater showing the 1963 Mario Bava horror film, uh, Black Sabbath. And that's where they just got their name from. Um, they were inspired by that. Um, and then a famous horror uh, or a famous British writer, Dennis Wheatley. Um, he was very uh, prolific. Um, he also wrote a horror story that inspired them uh, to write the first track, opening track, Black Sabbath. And then they finally changed their name in August of 69. So that almost brings us up to present. But I've got a musical theory digression first. So something that Ooh. is... Uh, 
indicative or you know a hallmark of black sabbath sound and of the metal genre in general and that's why they are considered the first metal band not the beatles as matt would have you believe not led zeppelin as a lot of people maybe proto metal but not true metal in the way that black sabbath is um they used uh what's called a tritone um on especially on the opening track but also in many songs um that's the flat fifth right yes correct that's how Um, i've always known it yeah yep it's also known as the devil's interval um Uh (laughs) now technically this is uh a tritone is any interval that's not a perfect interval. Uh, and, and I watched a bunch of YouTube videos trying to understand this. And man, music theory is like, yeah. it's like a completely other language. <laughs> right? I was like, yeah. what the fuck are you guys talking about? And um, so it could be, you can, uh, a tritone could be the third, fourth, fifth, sixth interval on a guitar, um, or I guess any piece of uh, instrument. But um, this one is the opening track uses the fifth. And, um, Iomi was inspired by uh, classical uh, music uh, composer Gustav Holtz. He had a whole suite of music called The Planets, um, and this one was from Mars Bringer of War. And um, I sent you guys a link earlier, and it had both, uh, you know, the Black Sabbath track and the uh, a section from the Mars Bringer of War, and you can hear the mm. similarity when you listen to them back to back. Now it's called the Devil's Interval because back in the Gregorian chant slash you know medieval times, um, you know ancient times before the before the dawn of man, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they found the tritones um, very dissonant sounding and causing tension. So that's why they <laughs> felt like it was God. not a. Uh, you know, not something that they want. They probably had strict rules regarding music and stuff, and and um, so they were trying to skew away from that. There's a lot of myths and legends saying, you know, they refute they, uh, you know, refused people playing the notes and stuff. But that's all kind of like made up. There's a bunch of articles about the history of that as well that are very interesting. If you want to go down that I, rabbit hole, I've always attributed it to the sound that I hate so much in like medieval music that gets played nowadays, mm-hmm. and then the Devil's Tritone, which I love. Yeah. Just I, I just feel like something evolved over time because one gives me a visceral reaction is the opposite of what was supposed to. But yep. yeah, yeah. So other um, other tracks or uh, notable works that use the tritone. Um, uh, Jimmy, the opening of Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix uses that. Um, actually, mm-hmm. Getz and Gilberto use oh. uh, a tritone in Girl from Ipanema. And um, oh, also wow. the Primus uh, South Park theme song uses uh, tritones. <laughs> so that's probably kind of why it sounds a little uh, discordant or dissonant to you. Plus, like, the entire music catalog of Slayer, like, yes. well, the yeah, 80s Metallica, the, yes, like, everything. Judas yeah. Priest, like, half of their catalog. Yeah. Yeah. So, Rush. And also uh, Pearl Jam, I believe, does. I saw a Stroke song that uses it that you can mm-hmm. tell. Um, so, yeah, it's it's widely used now in rock music. It's not this sort of, like, foreign, obscure concept. It's everywhere and not just the, the fifth, you know, the fifth, uh, diminished fifth. It's all sorts of music theory, different ones that you can use. Another so. one that I love is Mr. Crowley by Ozzy by himself. has mm-hmm. tritones all over it, yeah. yeah. Randy Rhodes is playing. But it's definitely, I think, a hallmark of metal music. You can hear it. There's also a bunch of songs on YouTube that do people playing guitars entire songs on 
on tritones and it's just you know it sounds like metal basically in my in my ear so back to black sabbath um their first show as black sabbath was august 30th 1969 um they were signed to phillips records shortly after that in november and then they released a single called evil woman which didn't chart and is not on this album um the album was recorded in a single day in about 12 hours on October 16th, 1969, Jeez. and they played it live. Um, they didn't do separate instruments or anything. They basically put Ozzy in a booth and everybody else was in the same room, and they just played played it um, straight. Hmm. The album was released Friday the 13th, 1970 in the UK, <laughs> of course. and uh, June 1st in the US in 1970, and it reached 8 on the UK charts and 20 third on the billboard 200 where it stayed for a full year now it was not critically loved but (laughs) they sold very well they were popular among the masses uh lester bangs in rolling stone said quote it's just like cream but worse and then (laughs) (laughs) robert Criscow called it quote bullshit necromancy and quote worst of the counterculture worst of the counterculture um so that was some thus uh, beginning the, the lifelong hatred yes. of metal by serious route journalists <laughs> yes and i, I use serious absolutely as in incorrectly quotes. as possible yes yep we will be talking more about sabbath in the near future because their next album paranoid also came out in 1970 mm-hmm. and um, was even more successful and so yeah we got there i got i got a little bit of fun facts afterwards but Let's uh, let's go to John first. What did you think of uh, Sabbath listening speaking, to this round? Speaking of artists who I'm sure felt like they came out of nowhere in the yeah. era that it was there, 1970. Yeah, this is, I mean, I've listened to this album a bajillion times. I don't think it's, well, for those that know me, but for the listeners who are listening for the first time, I don't think it's a secret that I, while I wouldn't call myself a hardcore metalhead i love metal and have for almost my entire life and yeah this is where metal begins from the as josh was so kind to mention the the flat fifths as i know it to ozzy soaring vocals to the sort of the galloping drums that i always associate mm-hmm. with 70s metal um uh, yeah and and tony iomi and geezer butler can really play the guitar but in a different way than shredders play the guitar mm-hmm. which i think is a hallmark of of black sabbath but it's ominous yeah. sounding it's it's heavy it's dark it's all of the things that are a nice buffer i i can absolutely see why people who were looking for a certain thing in music hated it at the time i think though it's a testament to how few of the people saw few of the people in that crowd yeah. were truly plugged into the masses because it's funny that the masses got it so quickly, even though this isn't what you'd call a commercial sound. And mm-hmm. yet the, the critics did not. And I, I think to this very day, there's still an element of that with metal where it still sells prolifically. And yet to mm-hmm. certain types of music fans, it's still a baffling concept as to why it does. Um, and, but yeah, this is, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of metal. If you're a metal head, I feel like it's, this is a hard album for me to talk about because if you're a metalhead, you already know this album inside out. If you are not a metalhead, you probably are avoiding this because music that doesn't sound like the type of music you like, or you just need to listen to it once to get the the feel for what it is. Heavy, dark, sludgy would be another word I would say, um, mm-hmm. and quick. It's you know in the mid 30s in terms of length, but it does not 
seem like it drags on forever to me at least. So mm. I'll kind of follow up with what you guys say, but yeah, a very, very strong recommend for me. One of the true albums that I can say is, is truly the formation of a new type of music that's long lasting. In fact, you could argue metal's the only type of rock music that's still <laughs> being produced in any sort of form mm. in this day and age in 2021. Yep. All right, Matt, what about you? Did you so draw I, a pentagram and uh, you know, start <laughs> praying to Lucifer? Before, before I get into that, I have to give props to my brother, um, because if it weren't for him, I would not have been prepared for this segment, because when I started listening to our albums, I was listening to Paranoid. Oh, jeez. Um, I thought, I was like, oh, Black Sabbath, and I saw 1970 Paranoid, I went yeah. there. I didn't know that this, so he's like, texts me, and he goes, man, this is badass. And I was like, yeah. well, yeah, it's Black Sabbath. He goes, but I didn't know any of this. And I'm like, you didn't know Iron Man? He goes, no, I know that. He goes, I, I, that's on Paranoid. I was like, yeah, wait, what? So we were confusing each other, and then I looked through, I was like, oh, I need the other, okay. So thank you, Mike. I yeah, bet I you wouldn't have made that mistake with the Beatles. <laughs> No, no, I definitely would not have. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, this album is definitely where heavy metal starts. Um, the the Beatles. Now, listen, I didn't say the Beatles started it. I said they kind of <laughs> did a heavy metal kind of like song that was just a heavier song. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is evil, right? This is terrified. That opening track is terrifies me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and when you couple that, if you listen to the opening track while looking at the album cover. Yeah. You're going to have nightmares, right? <laughs> like, it, this is a terrifying album. And this is, to me, going back to talking about what we were saying with Funkadelic, this is the type of thing that I would say that people would run away from and be like, what is going on? Like, this is something that would parents hear their kids listening to. I mean, there's yep. direct, Swear like, my name started. is Lucifer. Take yep. me, I'm, I'll take your hand. <laughs> like, he's screaming, like, oh, God, no, please help me. Then this horrible, shrieking voice. This is a scary, scary album. Um, or at least in least in parts, because the funny thing is, is after you do the Black Sabbath song, right. you go into the Wizard, and that sounds like, well, this is Zeppelin, right? Yeah. Now, now it sounds like Zeppelin. So exactly. it, they do kind of go in and out of the darker, like scary horror film kind of like sounds mm -hmm. um, to the more traditional, you know, kind of hard rock that Zeppelin was doing. You know, complete with like harmonicas and you yeah. know, it, there's guitarists in there that I'm like, this this sounds like you know, like Jimmy Page. Um, so. Uh, so yeah, I, I I really did like this record. Um, the the longer songs are interesting. Um, it's like it's it's like this is like almost like prog rock. It's like let's just meld three or four songs together. Yeah, I don't get is what why it they sounds like. <laughs> yeah, and and I would say with both of them, I mean, there's parts of this album. A couple of things that I noticed. One, it's interesting how you can hear like they're double tracking stuff. So you've got two yes. Aussie voices. One yep. in one ear, one in another, and it's yes. not har he's not really harmonizing. He's kind of singing the same part, but in a slightly different way and a little bit off off beat with each other. So you're kind of getting this this bouncing back and forth of the vocals, yep. as well as the guitar, which is like Yami's. What is it? Is it um? Iomi, right? That's yep. how you pronounce it. So mm -hmm. Iomi's playing like a guitar solo in one set, one side, and then another one on another side, and they're kind of playing together. So it's it's a very interesting way that they produce this. Um, yeah, if yeah. you hear Ozzy's voice, he sings it straight, and then he does the sort of like wailing, yeah, as opposed to it like that, you know, like no one knows. Like he goes up, but then the other part of it's like knows, and you can hear both pieces, like you mentioned, Matt. Right. That's a but I, hallmark but I wouldn't, of Black Sabbath. Yeah, but I wouldn't call it harmony though. He's not really no. harmonizing no, with himself. No, it's a right? different yeah. sound. It's a, yeah, it's an oral sound. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but it's cool, right? Um, and his voice, even when he's not doing the creepy songs, his voice is just creepy. You know, it's, it's a very unique yeah. sounding voice, very, you know, um, very metal. And you can see how that's influential. But I think on those longer songs, I like it when there's there's several parts where Iomi's kind of noodling just by himself and he's doing mm-hmm. these really cool guitar parts. And that's fine. And I, I do like that. But I, I liked it better when he was playing with the band and the, the with the riffs, right? And the riffs on top of that. There's some great riffs in this. Um, and I I think my favorite part of the album is maybe it's the NIB song where it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When they do that, I'm like, yes, like I got the, I got the horns going and you know, that's, that's a very metal riff. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think Zeppelin was doing the sound like that. Right. So you can definitely hear the progression going on. So, um, so yeah, they even have like the wizard in here, which is kind of like what Zeppelin would end up doing with like, you know, yeah. I think that song actually was, I think I did read somewhere that that's about Gandalf or something. That's correct. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, what Bill Ward said. It's based on Tolkien. And See? So even, yeah. yeah so there's Gandalf. something about this that's just like, you know, metal, metal's got to be somewhat, you know. The starting um, metal's obsession with the world of fantasy. Yeah, and exactly. also metal's obsession with the long song as well, as mm. seen by the prog metal and, you know, in the late 70s all the way to now. Yeah, That's the metal that kind of is carried. Yeah, I don't, and I, I think going back to those 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 long songs, I I don't see how they all fit together. Um, like I I think it, I think they would be better served as individual pieces because I was kind of, mm-hmm. it kind of just seemed like they just slapped them together. Um, and it's interesting that they chose to kind of string them in in a quote one so, one long song. Um. But uh, but that's a small criticism. I think it's not like it's 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 a huge issue. Um. But yeah, this this album kicks ass, and it's 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 also terrifying. <laughs> so I can't answer that album cover. I hate horror movies. I've never liked being scared. I don't mm-hmm. get the obsession with hey, let me sit in a movie theater, a dark movie theater for two hours, and get scared shitless. Like that seems like fun. Like I don't yeah. want to do that, you know. So at part, and sometimes I didn't want to listen to that opening track because I didn't want to feel scared. So I kind of just went to the wizard. <laughs> but, oh my god! Uh, oh my god! Oh my god. <laughs> so uh, I was like, I don't want to get wow. yelled. I don't want to get screamed at by Ozzy. All so. right. That happened like once, but still, like it's it still. But that that feeling was there. I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this right now. Um, Get so Linus's blanket. Song. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's funny. So that was a uh, filmed in front of a watermill in Oxfordshire. That cover mm-hmm. of the album, and there's a picture on Wikipedia. It looks very picturesque outside uh, of the album. So <laughs> maybe you want to move. Well, there. Birmingham in that era though was like, yeah. you know, we talked a lot about the '70s in America and <laughs> like England was us times two in many ways with you know inflation and lack of jobs and manufacturing dying like a death a decade ahead of when it died for us pretty much Mm -hmm. um and that's like it's i think a big part of understanding black sabbath sound is to understand where they came from as well they just sort of were like working class dudes who (laughs) you know their music to some degree in, in the same way that the kinks and the who were inspired by the era that they were around like the black sabbath was in their own way yeah, Birmingham was a very industrial town. Um, that's and they that's what and they doctored that, that they doctored that photo up to make it even look creepier, you know. Mm-hmm. Like so, uh, yeah. But Josh, what do you think? Um, I I thought this album was great. Um, I also am a fan of metal. Um, probably not as much as John, but I I love hearing it, and I love uh, especially when kind of the the best of the more recent bands rise to the top, like Mastodon and stuff. I always kind of check them out. Um, but they're not, re- it's never, never really in my rotation, mm. I would say, but I always enjoy listening to it. The, um, I really get 
so Matt's right. You can hear the sound of metal in that opening track, but I was surprised that I don't think I had ever listened to this uh, this album before, um, outside of the kind of the well known songs. So I was surprised at how kind of like rock focused it was, or how much it deviated or went between like blues and rock and metal on this mm-hmm. album. It's kind of a a very interesting uh, entry point into metal too. I think this is a great place to start if you're interested in metal because you get you get a little sample and then you get some stuff yeah. that may be less intense and then they kind of bring it back into it. So I think it's a really, really good um, entry point. And I think it is a, it, it's, you don't, you haven't heard, maybe the metal stuff before, but you can hear kind of their influences, right? You can see how they're side, like you said, side to side with, with Led Zeppelin in some ways, or Mm -hmm. I can actually hear a little bit of cream too, influence, not influence, but like sound on that song, like wasp behind the wall of sleep, basically NIB track. Mm -hmm. Um, I hear some cream. NIB especially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you can hear that kind of like they take that blues and then they just make it really hard. Right. Or, or do something a little bit different. So I can see, you know, with all the bands that we've talked about milling around in England at that time, they, I can see how Black Sabbath would come out of that. Um, I mean, besides the sound, you have the lyrics, right? Nobody else is writing about Lucifer or <laughs> the occult or just like dark, um, dark sounds you've got you know lyrics like who is this that stands before me and then later on says satan sitting there smiling or the yeah. the the love uh you know the nib's um long track is about lucifer falling in love with somebody and and all of that fits into the metal myth mythos right of of devil worship and all of that stuff the stuff that scared tipper gore shitless like, yeah exactly in the 80s yeah Um, but then you have, you know, you got Ozzy playing harmonica on the one song. You've got the Jews harp on that bit of finger track as well, which is interesting to throw that in because we haven't heard that. What do Black Sabbath and Leonard Cohen have in common? (laughs) I know, really. That's like an Ed McMahon number. (laughs) The essential question, week three. And, um, and I hear a lot of blues, uh, them playing blues guitar too on the back of the, on the back side of this track too. So it was really enjoyable. I, mm. I got into it and yeah, it's great. I can't wait to hear paranoid again. I haven't listened to that in a while. That is like black Sabbath proper, right? That's like what you think of when you think mm-hmm. of black yeah. Sabbath. So this is definitely an, uh, probably an initial release album. When you think about the career of black Sabbath as a whole, cause they're not right quite in that, that full metal sound yet, but they're like almost there and it's great. I like the uh, the like the uh, sort of the thing the doors blowing off of the car a little bit the rawness of it mm-hmm. I do like that about this album and that that's what stands out to me about this album even compared to the rest of Black Sabbath's early catalog is just how raw this album is yeah uh, you know and it bit, like you said Josh it was recorded infamously in. 12 hours, I think, including mm. the production. <laughs> yeah. They just double-tracked it, and then they were at the pub, I think. Yep. By the end of the day is how I've always known it, right? That's they what Ozzy yeah. said, yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I I don't think he's an exaggerator either, so he probably he's one of the few people who probably under-exaggerates his life. Yeah, and he also, I watched a brief uh, hour-long doc on, 
on Amazon about them. And he was also, Ozzy was very influenced by the kinks as well. So we've got that mm. progression of, you know, all these artists that we've listened to. It really says playing. how much he loved the Beatles and the kinks. And yet I don't really hear much of that. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's so amazing that like he could be so effusive about some of these bands like that. And then like, this is what the result of that is, right? Yeah, in in a know. relatively quick period of time, you know what I mean? That he's able to kind of go from there to here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I agree, John. I think that that's, you know, the, from the opening track, with from the, the, the effects of the lightning storm, the thunderstorm and then yeah. and the rain and then like that the, 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 the eerie guitar part um, to the to the end of that song, which is actually the part that I like the most is when uh, Iomi just goes dun, 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 yes. and it picks up <laughs> and it's like, yeah, like it's just and it. I almost want them to do that. Long, that's right? at the uh, 430 you know. mark. I, I know yeah, that they, when they, they start that breakdown. Yeah, I, I would like more of that in that song. But um. Well, there's also that like that racing guitar that like Iron Maiden would use like a ton down the road, just faster, sped up. That is clearly not Zeppelin was not doing that you know at that time you know so that was so you're right this definitely comes they come right at you with here you go you know this is something totally different and yeah it's 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 but it is crazy that Ozzy went jump made that jump but good stuff. So a couple fun facts that are important. Tony Iommi is is very important in the sound of, of Black Sabbath. And um, his middle and ring fingers of his left hand, of his fret hand, were severed off on his last day of working at a sheet metal factory. He actually said this in the doc that it was his last day of work because he was going to become full-time musician. <laughs> Not because so, he chopped his fingers yeah. off? Just he was, oh, that's brutal. So he, let, he lost like the the kind of the tips of those fingers and he created these fake plastic um fingertips like little thimbles with leather on them and um so to replace his fingers and so that he attributes that to kind of his uh unique playing style and then also he was encouraged by a co-worker at the sheet metal factory to listen to Django Reinhardt was a, who was a jazz uh, mm, artist yeah. who also lost two of his fingers, but his were lost in a fire. So that was kind of a, a similarity there. And he was very much into like classical music as well. And so, you know, like a lot of the artists we've listened to they're of these rock artists, they were not always interested in, in just rock music. They were interested yeah. in other things as you well. You know what's interesting about that? Like, it's amazing how many musicians, if you look in history, like had some sort of injury like that. Mm -hmm. And I kind of attribute it to kind of like baseball that like at the turn of the century, there were all these pitchers that had three fingers or, you know, three finger brown, right? Mordecai, three finger brown. Then others mm -hmm. that had like six fingers and what it allowed them to do and stuff. And it's just when innovation takes over. And the story, I'll use another baseball example. The story I always use and I try to, I'm a coach, you know, myself and just playing sports. I think there's a, a lot of over instruction and not a lot of creativity in certain pursuits, whether mm -hmm. it be music, athletics, stuff like that. And one of the things I always heard about Hank Aaron was he grew up so poor that no one really taught him how to play baseball. So he just grabbed a bat and he just thought, okay, I'll interlace my fingers when I hit. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until he was 18 at like spring training where somebody was like, you're doing it totally wrong. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, oh, and he switched it. But he attributed his incredible pull power, like his ability to pull the ball from the tendon strength he built from holding his fingers that way. And he also 
also thought it created like exceptional bat control. And he would from time to time in big at bats interlace his fingers again. Hmm. And like, I just am always amazed when like, you're kind of left to your own volition without people telling you the quote unquote, quote, right way, end quote, um, what kind of stuff can come out of it. And think about that. Like in today's era, would, you know, Iomi have even thought to do that? Or would he have like looked online for right. something or, or, you know, and, and gotten his fingers fixed, you know, another possibility, yeah. but you know, it's just, and I just say, it's very interesting how, you know, ingenuity yeah. comes from sometimes inspired places. And you wonder how much of that is still around. Mm. Yeah. Speaking to that as well, he'd also tune down his guitars and to make, um, the strings easier to play. Oh yeah. And, um, he would, uh, he said in the doc that because they didn't have different, um, gauge strings back then, you know, like they do now they have all different yeah. gauge strings. He would, uh, use banjo strings to play because they would be easier to play. So he'd tune his guitars with banjo strings. And then that coupled with him hitting the strings and then like bending the strings, which you can hear, like help kind of create that heavy sound as well, yeah. like holding those notes. I guess they're called open notes. That's interesting. So would he even have come up with any of that style if he didn't chop his fingers off? You know, yeah. right? Because I mean, he was kind of forced into that situation. Or would so. he have tried to play like Eric Clapton, like the cream yeah. stuff that everybody yeah. hears? But he basically was trying to play cream riffs, just slow and down tone. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what Black Sabbath sounds. It's not. I mean, I would wouldn't go so far as to say cream, but they saw it's not. But I hear, yeah. I know where that came from because yeah, it's. But you know, he probably would have instead tried to sound like Eric Clapton instead of doing it a different version. Yeah, and then what they wouldn't have had the sound like this that you know, yeah, like and yeah. it would have been that's crazy. Wow, mm-hmm. that's the other good stat, Josh, that is a other, fun fact. The other fun fact I have is that NIB doesn't actually stand for anything. That was kind of a placeholder song title by Bill Ward. Um, it was originally, or. Um, or by Geezer Butler, and it was originally named after Bill Ward's beard, which looked like a pen nib. So he just named it Nib, and then he added the dots <laughs> in. And then, um, and then when it was a released in America, they they took it upon themselves to name it Nativity in Black. So they made the acronym into something um, when it wasn't actually. So oh. I thought that was funny. But yep, those are that's all I have for Black Sabbath. I can't wait to talk about more. Sounds like you guys were also positive on it, and. Now we're going to shoot it over to Matt for the last, the last, the, the tear, last. tear emoji. Going I know down my face. we're all sad. It's particularly John. Let it be. He's loved, Let it be. He's loved talking be. about the Beatles so much. Um, mm. So the Beatles, let it be. Um, this album, we'll do the rankings. This album was ranked number um, 12 of the uh, 1970s. So this is a um, highly ranked album. It is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is number 12. In the year 1970, not overall gotcha. 1970. Uh, 56 overall in the decade and 236 of all time. And for Rolling Stones uh, list, it is ranked 342. Hmm. So in the opening montage, we heard a clip from Across the Universe. And now we're going to hear a little clip from uh, I've Got a Feeling. I've got a feeling feeling deep inside oh yeah oh yeah that's right i've got a feeling a feeling i can't hide oh no no oh no oh no yeah yeah i've got a feeling 
so here we go. Um, we have covered the Beatles many, many times. Um, I have not gone through the all the episodes you can uh, hear them in, but <laughs> if you want to, with the Beatles episode four, Beatles for Sale episode seven, Please Please Me episode 17, Hard Day's Night 21, Help 23, Magical Mystery Tour 26, Rubber Soul 28, White Album 30, Sergeant Pepper 31, Revolver 32, and Abbey Road 34. Oh, so good job. Gonna, you, I think add that to your number <laughs> titles, like where we where we said the group before, Matt. Could you add yes, that to your accountant should, duties? Uh, uh, give me, uh, I'll be cleaning the stacks. Um, nice. But uh, yeah, you can, if you want the history... <laughs> Up until then, you could go through all of those uh, Matt's episodes. Oral history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, but this is all kind of a weird album because even though it's their last, the last album that they released, um, it was released on May eighth, nineteen seventy, which was actually a month after the band had officially broken up. Um, it, it was not the last album that they recorded. We talked about that with Abbey Road. So um, it depends on how, what your perspective is. I've always looked at it as Abbey Road is their true last album, um, and, but this one's just released late because of a lot of hangups, which I'll get to in just a minute. Uh, it did chop the charts, but it was not. It did not fare well critically overall for for a Beatles record. So this album comes. The recording of this album comes in the, a couple months uh, after the White Album was released in 19, late 1968, uh, and it it started from a desire from Paul McCartney to get back to kind of the the roots of the Beatles and stop with the experimentation and kind of just do an album straight up that could be played live, you know, without many effects in the studio. And he had the idea of of doing the rehearsals for this with a film crew around that would um, that would film them the writing those songs and and, and rehearsing them, and then um, they would they would eventually play the songs in a live concert in a big concert venue, and then release the movie and then have the album soundtrack and uh, and that's kind of what uh, what the the idea was. So they ended up booking a month at Twickenham Film Studios, which was the um, the same location that they recorded or they filmed their promo films for the singles Revolution and um, uh, Hey Jude. And they had a fairly positive experience there. So they decided, you know, let's go there, have all the uh, the filming done there. Uh, uh, but it was, and so it was basically like a huge warehouse that they were in. And they picked January as the, uh, January 1969 is the month to do this because they had actually sandwiched in between uh, George Harrison's trip to the United States in December of 69 and Ringo, if you guys remember from the Abbey Road episode, Ringo had commitments to star in The Magic Christian, the film that he was starring in with Peter Sellers, and he had to do that in February. So they had about a month, and that's when they booked the studio. So the recordings were just of the bands playing together, no overdubs or manipulations. It was just straight up, you know, kind of going back to their roots. But the rehearsals did not go well. Uh, right off the bat, the, you know, the studio was cold and uncomfortable. The film crew was kind of seen as intrusive with all the, you know, the people and the cameras and the lighting. Uh, Lennon and, Oko had, and Yoko Ono had descended into pretty deep heroin addiction, um, oh, and that was partly I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, they were. It was partly credited to. Well, there was a previous drug bust that they were both arrested for, and um, Yoko Ono also had a miscarriage, so they were pretty um, heartbroken about that, and so they started getting into heroin. And Lennon really wasn't. Um, he was kind of aloof throughout the whole, you know, recordings um, for all the recordings and, uh, you know, was kind of aggressive and, and <laughs> didn't really treat everybody in, in the best way possible. Uh, uh, this was particularly uh, difficult for George Harrison because he actually had a really good time in the United States. He was hanging out with Bob Dylan and the band in uh, Woodstock, and they just had a great, you know, camaraderie, a great experience. And so he actually arrived at Twickenham with, you know, being very positive, uh, but was quick to uh, you know, 
get set off by McCartney's kind of overbearing nature and, you know, kind of how his, the way that he would just control things. And the fact that Lennon was just so aloof and not really invested into the, into the project. And so he actually, uh, quit the band it's like all the just various members decided to quit the beatles for short periods of time around around here and uh, george quit on january 10th he did return about a week later but he uh, had a couple of demands one is which that they would actually leave twickenham studios and they would go back to apple uh, to finish the recording and he also wanted to bring in billy preston uh, the keyboard player who um, you know, George Harrison said, you know, if we have somebody else in the, uh, you know, in the studio with us, kind of an outsider, people are going to be on their best behaviors and that might help the, um, the camaraderie of, with the band. So, so Billy Preston does come into play and you hear him all over this record. Um, hmm. let it be. So they also culminated at the, at the end of the recording of this album, they decided to actually do a live, uh, performance, but they couldn't really agree on exactly where to go. A lot of different ideas were, uh, were, were thrown out there. Uh, but they just decided let's just not have to travel anywhere and do the concert on the roof of Apple studios. So that's what they did on January 30th. And they played for about 45 minutes before the cops came along and, uh, forced them to turn off the, uh, turn off this, the, uh, the, 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 the speakers um, but they actually three of the three of the songs that they um, played on the roof the recordings from that were actually put onto this album and that includes dig a pony I've got a feeling and one after 909 hmm. and this also represents the last uh, Beatles live performance so here comes the fun part this is the, this is the the aftermath of this is the really interesting part because the original recordings were re were produced by George Martin and Glenn Johns was brought in to be the engineer and his he, he mixes the album together but the band rejected the mix um, and so they then went on to record Abbey Road and later on in the fall their new manager Alan Klein at the, uh, the request of Lennon and Harrison um, Actually, this is before that. He Alan Klein decides to release the footage uh, of the of the uh, that was recorded at Twickenham Film Studios to make the film "Let It Be," and so he wanted the soundtrack. And so again, he gets Glenn Johns to come in to mix a recording of the soundtrack. But again, that's that is rejected by the band. They're thinking thinking that it's substandard. Um, so that's when Lennon and um, uh, uh, Harrison, you know, basically later tell Alan Klein, hey, go get, give these tapes to Phil Spector. Uh, he will do the, the production work on it. Um, so Phil Spector gets in there and he layers orchestrations over three songs, including Paul McCartney's Long and Winding Road. Um, and uh, there was some reports that McCartney was okay with this because Phil Spector said, you know, after he made the, the, the final mixes, he sent it out to all the band members. They all approved it. So that's what they did. But later on, McCartney we just hated the over overproduction of the uh of the orchestration the chorus that was there and um and, <laughs> and later on in 2003 phil specter called mccartney's criticism quote hypocritical and he alleged that paul had no problem picking up the academy award for the let it be movie soundtrack <laughs> nor did he have any problem in my in using my arrangement of the string and horn and choir parts when he performed it during 25 years of touring on his own if paul wants <laughs> if paul wants to get into a pissing contest about it he's got me mixed up with someone who gives a shit um, <laughs> so, so i I'm, I, yeah, and I'll tip my hand right now. I'm not a big fan of the Long and Winding Road, my, but I do appreciate it because it gives us wonderful this wonderful story about that. I mean, that's kind of like the the main thing that kind of comes out of this is how much McCarty hated the overproduction uh, of this record. Um, however, George Martin 
also did not like what what uh, what Phil Spector did, um, and he said that it was basically was uncharacteristic of the sounds the Beatles had always uh, you know used. He said, and famously George Martin said that this should have read produced by George Martin and overproduced by Phil Spector. <laughs> And interestingly enough, George Martin did not get a production credit on this. This is credited totally to Phil Spector because he was the one that finally, he was the last one to, to, to have hands on it. So, Matt, have they released, I mean, do they have other bootlegs of the other track? Oh, yeah, that was versions? Let It Be Naked, man. That yeah, that was, that was a big naked. softball. Yes, yeah. Let It Be Naked released in 2003, which I'll talk about in just a second. But that okay. was Paul McCartney basically saying, all right, let's 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 release this album the way that it should have been, which was more stripped down. Because think about it, again, the original intent, at least from McCartney's perspective, was to do an album that's just straight up, you know, no frills, just do a, a rock album. And, and you're not really getting that with what Spectre did. Oh, um, okay. So, uh, so the other thing... <laughs> I have to give Lennon's quote here. Uh, the the other members basically said that when this was released, this was the you know kind of version that they wanted. And John himself said, quote, when Spectre came in, it was go and do your audition. And he worked like a pig on it. He'd always wanted to work with the Beatles and he was given this shittiest load of badly recorded shit without a lousy feeling, <laughs> with, a, with a lousy feeling to it ever. And he made something out of it. He did a great job. When I heard it, I didn't puke. <laughs> so, Backhanded so compliment. Yeah, ex- yeah. So, um, so that's kind of the big controversy with this here. Um, and uh, I have well, a really couple was of three of the Beatles liked it, right? And it was only McCartney that really hated it, if I remember at correctly. At the time, yeah, at the time, yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, but even though McCartney said initially, I think what happened is McCartney said, "Yeah, it's fine." And then you know, because he was kind of doing his own thing, working on his own album, um, his his first solo album. And then I think he listened to it later on a couple of times. And the more he listened to it, the more he hated it. And he actually reached out to. Alan Klein and to uh, Phil Spector and, you know, insisted that they change even after it was released that, that they changed certain aspects of it and they just wouldn't yeah. do it. So he sent you know. a hilariously fucking Paul McCartney letter that if you ever want to look at it, I remember when let it be naked came out. There's yeah. like, there's a copy of the letter. It's fantastic. It's exactly the letter you think Paul McCartney would send to Phil Spector. And it's exactly the type of letter that you would imagine Phil Spector, like showing up with a gun at his house, like to respond to. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I always like that story better than the actual song. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so, all right. I have a couple other things to talk about in the aftermath here, but, um, let's, uh, let's go with our reactions. Let's see. It's Josh's turn, I think. So Josh, what are your thoughts on let it be? Yeah, I, I like this album. Um, it does sound different than the other albums you know especially abbey road since that's the closest one to it um i can hear the layering and the wall of the quote-unquote wall of sound on it but i don't feel like it's uh, detracts from my experience um Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a i feel like there's a little bit of banter on some of the tracks which makes it kind of feel more of like a hangout album i don't know why you know either I feel like they half-assed that part, like either do it more and like make it feel more of like a hangout album or just cut it out completely. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of feels half done or half thought out on that. It, this album in a way does feel like a final album to me in a way that Abbey Road didn't. Um, I don't know exactly why why it does. Maybe Long and Winding Road just sounds like a final song. <laughs> mm. But you've got some great you've got some great tracks on this. Uh, I am interested. I'm going to listen to that Let It Be Naked. It is on Spotify, so I'm going to see if yep. I can tell the difference or um, see if I can catch it now. But um, 
I think you start off strong on this album with Two of Us and Dig a Pony. Those are great songs. There's great production sound on it. Um, Dig a Pony ironically sounds like Joe Cocker, who covered Little Help with a little help for my friends. It almost sounds mm. like his version of that song or something. Um, I'm not. I'm not a fan of uh, Across the Universe, really, mm. but I do like. Um, some of the other songs um, like I Me Mine gets in your head and I've got a feeling I like I've got a feeling because it's like they each get their own part um, which they don't really do and I can't think of any times when they each kind of get their own singing verse um, separately by themselves. Well they do there's the, earlier on they did like something like um, you know uh, We Can Work It Out is it's a very uh, much the same song as that because because those the parts that they're singing are the parts that they wrote and that song in particular was Paul had part of the song and John had another part of a song and then they mm -hmm. put it together kind of like what they did with, you know, um, yeah, we can work it out and uh, uh, a day in the life very similar to that. Mm -hmm. So they, they did do that, but it had been a while since you really saw that, you yeah. know, in the latter part of the sixties. Long enough that I forgot about it. So. Yeah. Right. And um, the, the other thing that kind of feels like out of place is they have these two very short song snippets in there that are just kind of also throw away from Maggie May and I can't remember the other dig one. It. Yeah, dig, dig it. it yep. Which is like 30 seconds or less actually. And um, so I don't know why they did that. It's another part of like, you know, almost like sketches or, or something. Why not just uh, do more of that or, or just leave it out entirely. So this kind of feels like an experimental album in that way, or just kind of like uh, almost like a B-sides album, even though they're not B-side songs, but uh, just like extra stuff for the fans almost. But then you close on I, on Get Back, which I love the opening of I Get Back. It, every time I hear it, it gets me excited, mm. and it's just such a good song. So it's not like they're, <laughs> they've suddenly like lost their talent, and they're just like... Uh, you know, just struggling to produce stuff. They clearly still have material and they still have all of the skill set and, and, um, you know, the camaraderie and, and chemistry together to mm -hmm. make an album, but it, it doesn't, um, it, I don't know. I liked it more than Abbey road getting to my rankings. I wow. have it. I have it. No, I don't have it more than Abbey Road. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I have it ranked nine overall in between Please Please Me and Magical Mystery Tour. So uh, Abbey Road, I have at seven. Okay. So okay. it's a, wow. it's an interesting Beatles experiment. You still have catchy songs. You still have um, a good deep cuts on here, things that you forget about. But it just doesn't all come together for me in a coherent album. All right. John, yeah. what do you think? I, I don't like this album a lot at all, mm. to be honest. It's always the Beatles album from the late career that I have never liked. <laughs> I think it's interesting for all of the talk about Spectre on it. He doesn't, like when you listen to Let It Be, you know, you could see where it goes away, but I, I won't, the songs he worked on for the most part, not all, but the songs he worked on for the most part are songs I don't like to begin with. And so like, mm -hmm. I get that he was trying to do something different, whether or not you like that Phil Spectre sound. I do, so it didn't bother me as much. Like when you hear Let It Be Naked, it's just a crappy, schmaltzy Paul McCartney song. And to mm -hmm. me, that's what this album has always been. It's bad Paul McCartney songs, pretty good John Lennon songs, and average George Harrison songs that feel mm -hmm. like he's just punching the clock. Because I often find the George Harrison songs to be the, the stellar gems on the albums, but these, to me, are not 
the two songs, you know, I think it's I, Me, Mine, right, is one of yep. his, and For You, Blue, right? That's yep. the two. And yeah. neither of those really stand out. They feel sort of wedged in, like they're almost giving him begrudgingly yeah. the song, which I know I think McCartney actually was at this point. I, I, I hate the song Let It Be. I hate the song The Long and Winding Road. In fact, The Long and Winding Road might be my least favorite Beatles song. I just, it's uh, just... It's everything I don't like about Paul McCartney when he's not. I, I, the more I listen to the Beatles, I realize that that McCartney needed Lennon more than Lennon needed McCartney, I think, which is, I know, a hot take, but it's huh. it's not so much that they're not both great songwriters, but you can, like, Wings is what was going to happen, and Wings yeah, is what did happen. And yeah. it's like, okay, th- this is where, like, Wings is starting to happen. And God bless those that like Wings, and we're going to cover them, but that... To me, you know, I didn't always love everything John Lennon did solo career, but he was always interesting. At least to me, Wings was like unfiltered Paul McCartney. And like, that's what I hear that here. And it's like, you know, and once again, I I think it's like kind of a mock to me, a kind of a silly controversy of what Spectre did. Yeah, it doesn't sound like the Beatles if you think the Beatles sound like Paul McCartney. And what I see is like a guy like John Lennon and George Harrison looking to evolve and Paul McCartney kind of not. And that's probably where the difference is. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've always liked the song across the universe. I think it's a, it's a cool song. I know it's, there's a lot of people really hate that song, which is always very interesting to me because to me, it's kind of classic Beatles mm-hmm. um, in terms of the type of songs they write a big hook sort of, I don't know it to me, it's the most call back to what the Beatles do unless you say get back. Um, but yeah, I, this one would be, boy, I might like, I might like this one better than Beatles for sale. I might, but I'm not sure. I mean, oh, wow. This, wow. That's it, so it's a last. It is. It just, it, it, it's disjoint, but not interesting disjoint. I just think it's, it, it, it feels like the, the album that was pieced together, like a Franken album that mm-hmm. it, yep. it, it was. And it, that's yeah. as a result. And I mean, I, We've joked about, you know, Josh not loving Abbey Road and stuff, but like, boy, compared to Abbey Road, it <laughs> it yeah. just does does not hold a candle to that album at all or the yeah. White Album or anything in that era. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I like to look at Abbey Road as being the last album. I want them to go mm-hmm. out on a high note. And that's kind yeah. of and that was a much better experience and a more and, and a more cohesive album, even you know, even though they had this, all those songs at the second side kind of just jumbled together, but but it, they made it work somehow. For but me. they're all good. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's right. The difference. Right, and that too. Right. Um, the other thing that's interesting, you mentioned the Harrison songs before I get to my commentary. Uh, it's interesting because that's one of Harrison's biggest issues is that he had all these songs, and McCartney and Lennon were very dismissive of him, and they didn't really put effort into playing his songs, um, and so. He, and, and he had other songs like that went on all things must like he had all things must pass right that was a song and like that didn't mm-hmm. make it on here <laughs> he had yeah. better songs than that and he they they gave three like, al- weaker songs yeah three albums were at the songs if i remember pretty correctly much, pretty Jeez. much yeah so um so that's uh, J- harrison hated <laughs> doing this album but uh um and i i agree i i really do like across the universe um actually overall this album i do have mixed feelings with it, it, it i i hear both of what you're saying, I think there's elements of this that I really do like. Um, I think my favorite song on here was I Got a Feeling. I that's I love that song. I think that is a deep, a great deep McCartney song that, um, you know, 
obviously it's not like it's not a well-known song, but usually when people think of McCartney, there's tons of other songs that they come, come to their minds before this. But, um, for that, I, I just, I've always liked that. Um, and, uh, I love the working with Lennon on it as well. Um, I do like get back. I agree that that's a great song. I, I don't know how you don't like across the universe, Josh. I, I would say that there's int- one of the interesting things about this record is there are so many different versions of some of these songs and across right. the universe was actually done like a year before this was recorded. This was, that was the, that was a song that Lennon pretty much wrote when he was in India and they had tried it several times and they never really got exactly the recording that they wanted to. And the only reason that that is in this, um, on this album is because when they were filming the band rehearsing, Lennon was, they were playing parts of across the universe and they wanted that they wanted to make sure that the album that came out had the songs that were featured in the film. So it's kind of just by happenstance that they put that in there anyway. Um, but there are better versions of that song. That's one of the songs that, you know, Spectre put some orchestration in. Mm, okay. Um, so, uh, but you can hear on past masters, there's a different version, right. Um, and, and you know, like on a greatest hits album, there'll be a different version, but so, uh, but yes, I agree. The long and winding road is just, I agree, John, that is my least favorite Beatles song. Mm-hmm. It's just so, boring and plotting and there's no hook there's it's just like uh, it puts me to sleep and um it's a little bit better on let it be naked without the orchestration i don't know it's cheesy on this and there it's just even worse because it's boring cheesy yeah i don't i just don't like it i yeah i'm not pulling for it either way um you know so the, the little songs like Dig It and Maggie May, those are kind of, they're the, some of those, Maggie May, I think was like a 15 minute jam that they actually did. And they just cut the little snippet of it and put it in here. Mm. Um, and I think on Let It Be Naked, they might actually, there's like a bonus disc that comes with that. So they, they extend some of these songs a little bit more. Um, and Maggie May is like a traditional, like Liverpool song, like an old Liverpool song that Lennon always loved. And I think he played it with the Quarrymen. And, you know, mm. so um, that was them. Because again, they're trying to bring this back to, to the you know to their old days one yeah. after 909 was a song that lennon wrote before the beatles were even formed so um that's a song that actually recorded back you know in 63 it just never made it to a record and they put it on that here so- that sounds like a early beatles song yeah. yeah um so yeah this is um yeah it's 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 a little sad listening to this it's just not you know it's not it does kind of stand out i still think that there's some strong moments but as an overall whole not not my favorite you know not even by a long shot i do have it kind of higher up than some other you know records i do i have it at number nine overall um yeah that's why i have it i have it behind magical mystery tour and ahead of uh beatles for sale so because i do think that there's still elements of this that i you know um, i still really like it's just um their stronger points are kind of stronger than on some of the other the records that that i have below it uh but yeah it's um I don't know. It's it is a weird album. It's probably the strangest album that they have. I would say. Um, mm. Yeah. Can I read the Paul McCartney letter because it's not oh, too please. long and it's yes. hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So dated fourteenth April nineteen seventy, cc'd at the bottom to Phil Spector and John Eastman, signed by Paul McCartney. Dear sir, in future, no one will be allowed to add to or subtract from a recording of one of my songs without my permission. I had considered orchestrating the long and winding road, but I decided against it. I therefore want it altered to these specifications. One, strings, horns, voices, and all added noises to be reduced in volume. Two, vocal and beetle instrumentation to be brought up in volume. Three, 
harp to be removed completely at the end of the song and original yeah. piano notes to be substituted for don't ever do it again signed paul mccartney <laughs> and that was you said that was on april 14th john april 14th yes so that was four days after paul mccartney officially quit the beatles yes um you could just and, see him like yeah. You know, doing the true Paul McCartney <laughs> passive aggressive thing right there. So I just imagine Phil Spector looking at this. You know, hey, we all know how Phil Spector ended up, and you know, yes, it is what it is. And a murder. You can, yeah, you can <laughs> pretty much. You can you can tie it to the head injuries from that accident in 1974. You can say he was already going there before it, right? But uh, but at this, okay, I just imagine him getting this letter, typewritten letter, and just lighting it on fire yep. you know and oh, yeah. then smoking a joint in it and then yeah. shooting it several yeah. times <laughs> with a shotgun yes. um so yeah uh but i think let it be naked to, going back to that i that's the that's the version of this that you should listen to i think mm. um you okay. know it doesn't have the production josh it doesn't include uh, maggie may or dig it oh you don't you don't think so hot hot take it's not okay. better it's it's not oh. worse but it's not better either it's like it has it's, Don't Let Me Down on it. It's better. It has Don't a, Let Me Down on it. Uh, I'll, I'll give it that. Don't Let Me Down is all. Uh, I mean, I, I, here, I, I will go. This is a true hot take. It's a different type of mediocre album. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. It's another mediocre album just without certain elements that they produce that's different. Yeah. But it's I a mean, stripped down bad album. Granted, the songs are still the songs, right? It's not like you yeah. hear it and you're like, "Holy cow!" That's all this. You know, there's definitely some noticeable things that you will that you will be able to see. Um, but uh, it does have "Don't Let Me Down." It takes out "Dig It" and "Maggie May," which are kind of just there. Um, but uh, I, I do like the production of it better. But I, it, I, it's yeah. I don't feel I have to be a Beatles apologist for an album that three of the four Beatles themselves didn't like. So you know. That's mm -hmm. just kind of my. I don't take. think they, I, I mean even yeah I don't think any of them really liked it. You know, it was kind of. Uh, well, and George Harrison releases an awesome set of yes. albums after this. Instant Karma by John Lennon comes out soon after this, and that's a very good album. Mm -hmm. um, Paul made Paul his did, music. Paul yeah. did McCartney. Yeah. Yep. And R Ringo actually made a better Paul album than Paul made <laughs> later and hit number one first, if I remember correctly. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I, I, so that's that's you just look at those albums that John Lennon and George Harrison made here. And I'm just like, that's yeah. where the songs were. And yep. they just, and they knew it, you know? And that's why I think this album's always fascinating because at this point, I think they just hoarded some, well, maybe George Harrison didn't want to hoard them, but I think John Lennon at this point was like, oh, I'm saving all my best stuff for what Yoko and I are doing. So well, I'm, I, I'm excited. I, I was going to say, I'm excited to see that Peter Jackson documentary that's coming out this year about this yeah. after and listening to this and yeah that's called that's like august this year i think it's the beatles get back and and it's yeah. one of the things it supposedly shows is like them all being happy you know i actually posted a clip on twitter um about that and it, it, this album is known for being a miserable experience but they but peter jackson's finding all this footage saying they actually there's a lot of fun moments in there that they're having you know that they're enjoying themselves so um so yeah, the other interesting thing about when "Let It Be Naked" was released was apparently there was a two-hour radio broadcast after when it was released um, that included interviews from the Beatles, um, and a twenty-minute roundtable discussion that included Cheryl Crow, Billy Joel, InSync's J.C. Chazes or Chazes or whatever that Chazay is. Chazay, get it right or pay the price, Matt. <laughs> Chazay, I'll pay the price. Yes. Limp Biscuits, Fred Durst, what, and Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> 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 exactly. I didn't even pick that. <laughs> I don't know. Oh my Did the manatees God. push the balls across the tent? Is that the tank? Is that how they picked that? <laughs> so. I just, I was like, I that somebody just made all that up. Um, 
So yeah, so technically Lennon Lennon quit the band unofficially in September of 69, but McCartney publicly quit in April of 70. Um, and later on in that year, McCartney filed suit for the dissolution of the Beatles contractual partnership. Uh, but it was, but due to legal you know, cases, it was not actually formalized until December 29th, 1974. Uh, Lennon did sign the paperwork terminating the partnership while on vacation with his family in Walt Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, I found funny. I I always like John Lennon. He just has a has a panache to him that you know just mm-hmm. makes him my favorite Beatle. Yeah, and the uh, the Beatles were inducted surprise surprise into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988, 73 uh, different times. Right, as individuals, as the Beatles, probably in the well, Quarrymen, well, like only once as the actual Beatles. And McCartney did not attend. He cited unresolved business differences that would make him feel quote feel like a complete hypocrite waving and smiling with them like with them at a fake reunion. Wait, when did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame start? I thought it was like the mid 80s. Um I don't I think the Beatles were the first ones to be inducted or the Maybe first the year. Was um, the first so year. 88 might have been the first year, but that might be a cleaning the stacks. Um I can look it up real quick. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, Josh is right. So I am looking forward to seeing that Peter Jackson film. Jackson film. Actually, this, this the film was supposed to be called Get Back originally. So you you read a lot in Wikipedia about oh it's you know the album's going to be Get Back. But since it took so long for the album to be released or the movie to be released, they wanted it. Get Back was actually a single already in early '69. So they wanted a they wanted to title it something that was more relevant to a single that they released. So um, that was Let It Be. Um, I think '86 well, was the first year. Yeah. And the Rock okay. and Roll Hall of Fame was established in 83. Yeah, I remember just okay. George Harrison being up there by himself, basically, and saying, this is a real shame, you know? Because <laughs> obviously, oh, Paul, Paul, Paul wasn't there, and obviously John wasn't there. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I think Ringo was there, Ringo too. Ringo had to be there. Yeah, I think the two of them were there, and they were kind of like, isn't this a shame? So Yeah, that's too yeah. bad. Yeah. Well, Same year as the Beach Boys. Well, it makes sense, so, you know, Dylan. if you're gonna pick the '60s, yeah. <laughs> so those I mean, first couple, those first couple of years must have been like Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and all those guys, right? Yes, and like Buddy uh-huh. Holly, The Who, Led Zeppelin, yeah, I'm sure. Sam it's like, Cooke. Yeah. No, I'm Chuck talking Berry. about like, like those Berry, first, yeah. those first two years. Yeah, yeah. it's it's stacked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to not look at that and try to write it down and see how well I do. And can I give a spicy hot take, even though we're running at the end of things here? And so I'm going to have to give this and then run away from it. So Matt's going to be so angry at me for this. I'm I'll give you angry space. at you. I'll give you space next episode. Here's my spiciest hot take. As influential and great as the Beatles were in modern music, I think Funkadelic and Black Sabbath are more influential to modern music than the Beatles. Oh, there we go. That's my take right there. So Yeah, I mean, maybe so. I, yep. I, I, that's a hard, how do you define, how do you quantify uh, that? Well, well, maybe that'll be the essential question next week. So maybe I can lead that segment, but, uh, that, you know, we're running almost the two hour mark guys. So I'm going to, I'm going to clean us up here if that's okay. Um, let me talk a little bit about what we're covering next week. Did you guys take a peek to see what you're covering next week? It's an I interesting did. episode. All right. Yes. I'll let you guys introduce your own stuff. Matt, what are you covering? I'm going to be covering Layla and other assorted love songs by Derek and the Dominoes. D and the D. Yep. I'll be Have covering the the next Velvet Underground song album, Loaded. And I'll be covering the Sly and the Family Stone album. There's a riot going on. Our second Sly and the Family Stone um, album. Very different than the first, two, <laughs> first yeah, one. Yeah, two two uh, returning artists yep. next week. Yep, and a brand new one. So, anything you want to add before I take us to a close, guys? We covered it. I'm good. 
We did. Well, we're going to do one more episode in this format, and then we're going to intersperse our first cold listen hot take as well. So I'm excited about that as well to introduce some new albums. But I'm going to sign us off. This is John signing off for both Josh and Matt as well. Hope you enjoyed the show and see you next week. The Coming to Stacks podcast is hosted by John, Josh, and Matt, who thank you as always for listening to the show. We'd like to thank our podcast host, Anchor, for hosting our full archive of shows. We'd also like to thank CleanFeed for providing our audio and Audacity for providing the editing software we use for the creation of the show. Coming to Stacks can be found on the following 10 platforms and counting. Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Verbal. Viewer feedback can be sent to comingthestacks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at ComingThe, and on YouTube by searching for Coming the Stacks and throwing us a follow. A website is coming on May 1st, 2021, and we'll make sure to let you know where to go.